And I'm so glad that there are people here tonight for our virtual celebration of LGBT History Month. As many of you know, tomorrow is Oscar Wilde's birthday. So we're celebrating just a little bit early. This is the fifth year the library company has scheduled an LGBTQ History Month event on or near October 16th as homage to Wilde. Last year, Greta Lafleur spoke on sex and sexuality and how they have a history. She gave examples showing the ways 18th century understandings of both race and sexuality were very, very different from what is generally believed today. Previous years featured Don James McLaughlin speaking on Sarah Orne Jewett, Carol Buck speaking on the Red Rose Girls, and Jen Mannion speaking about female cross-dressers in early American literature. This programming has been made possible by people like you. Please consider joining the Library Company's Charlotte Cushman Society to help us continue this series of lectures in subsequent years. As the Library Company's unofficial curator of LGBT history, I'm particularly thrilled to be able to bring Megan Springgate tonight. Let me tell you why I'm going to share my screen. Okay, I drive by this historic marker fairly often. Uh, last August, I stopped and read the sign that two women named Katie and Kate had added, thanking Anna Howard Shaw for her woman suffrage activism. And that, of course, was work that culminated in August 18th, August 18th, 1920, with the ratification of the 19th Amendment. I don't know Katie and Kate, but I love their sign. Anna Howard Shaw was, of course, a close friend of Susan B. Anthony's. And there you go. Susan B. Anthony is mentioned on this marker. Uh, Shaw was president of the National American Woman Suffrage Association from 1904 to 1915. So really important years. Uh, but the person who brought Anna Howard Shaw into focus for me was tonight's speaker, Dr. Megan Springgate, when she posted something on Facebook about Shaw's three-decade relationship with Susan B. Anthony's niece, Lucy Anthony. When I saw Megan's post, I knew immediately that I wanted to ask her to speak this year in conjunction with the many observances of the centennial of the 19th Amendment. Megan Springgate, in her work with the National Park Service, is helping bring LGBTQ history into focus for so many people after decades of omission or half-told biographies. I am very grateful that we can hear Dr. Springgate tonight uh, speaking on From Boston Marriages to the Lavender Menace, Queer Women and the Fight for Suffrage. Theoretically sharing my screen. Hopefully everybody can see that well. Is that working, Connie? I see it, yes. Excellent. Okay. I am... Um, I'm super grateful to have been asked to do this. I think the library company is just such a, a fantastic organization or inst institution actually is the better word. Um, you know, such amazing roots uh, in our history and also just like collections that you could just rummage and sift through for forever. Um, it really is a treasure. So Thank you so much for the opportunity to, to speak tonight. I, I'm, really, I'm really thrilled and honored. Um, so my introduction to queer suffragists um, comes out of my experience as the national coordinator for the National Park Service 19th Amendment Centennial Commemoration, which is the current hat that I'm wearing, um, and the editor of LGBTQ America, a theme study of lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and queer history. Um, which was a hat that I wore for a number of years uh, as a contractor to the National Park Foundation and the National Park Service. Um, it was published in 2016. So during the theme study, uh, I met people like Dr. Mary Walker, who is at the lower left of the screen, 
Dr. Mom Chung at the top, uh, Jane Adams. Um, and then diving into the 19th Amendment, I found out that they were also suffragists working for women's access to the ballot. And then as the 19th Amendment coordinator, I learned about people like Dr. Anna Howard Shaw, Carrie Chapman Catt, um, who are pictured together on the right, Nina Otero Warren and other suffragists who were in same-sex relationships um, for decades, you know, for the like these long relationships that that any of us would um, hope to have with somebody that we love. Um, and I will also say, uh, my background, I'm an historical archaeologist by training. Uh, that's what my doctorate is in. And so um, a lot of these folks, and, and I'm also an immigrant, I grew up in Canada. So a lot of these folks who, um, folks in the United States may have heard of, uh, you know, as part of their, you know, grade school education, um, were not part of my upbringing, right? So these really were introductions to me to these folks. Um, and, and then seeing these overlaps and these two giant projects um, has just been really fascinating. So my work on all of this is not original. Um, I'm definitely 100% standing on the shoulders of other researchers. Uh, who are looking at just how queer the suffrage movement really was. Um, these folks include Lillian Faderman, Wendy Rouse, and Anya Jabour, um, as well as all of those researchers who have brought these sort of individual relationships out of the shadows. Um, so, so we've seen scholarship um, that is recognizing individual relationships between women, um, and then there's this also sort of burgeoning uh, developing scholarship that is fitting all of those pieces together and looking at the suffrage movement as a uh, queer movement, an actual like significantly queer endeavor. Um, so I also want to acknowledge that there, that although I'm focusing on women, that there were also gay, bisexual, and transgender men um, who have also worked for suffrage. Perhaps the best known is Bayard Rustin, who was a key player and advisor to Dr. Martin Luther King during the civil rights movement, including the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom. Um, a lot of the work that they were doing also involved uh, voter registration and um, work to change the rules around access to the ballot. So the roots of the battle for the 19th Amendment go back to pre-colonial times. The women of the Haudenosaunee, uh, also known as the Iroquois in New York State had, had decision-making power in their communities. White settlers in the area who took the time to learn about their people they were displacing, like Matilda Jocelyn Gage, took this knowledge as a refutation that women's domesticity and exclusion from the public and political sphere was the natural state of affairs, which is how it had been framed, right? Women were naturally domestic, naturally um, you know, in the, in the home, naturally raising children, and, and it was men who, by nature, were out in the social sphere and the political sphere, right? This was, this, this was a social convention framed as the natural order of things, um, and looking at the Haudenosaunee um, women, it was like, oh, well, clearly this is not the natural state of affairs, because here is this other example where women have political power and decision-making ability in their societies. The first women's rights convention in 1848 in Seneca Falls, New York, uh, was where the group of women um, and one man or a couple of men drafted the Declaration of Sentiments. And in the Declaration of Sentiments, they asserted that men and women were created equal. They, they based the, or the beginning language of the Declaration off the Declaration of Independence which states that all men are created equal, and the Declaration of Sentiments says that all men and women are created equal. Um, the Declaration enumerates the many ways in which women were disadvantaged, uh, including, controversially at the convention, no access to the ballot. All of the other things that were included in the Declaration passed unanimously, talking about women not having access to property, um, when they were married, um, limited in where they could work and then not having, then not owning their own wages, um, no say in whether they were going to have sex or not have sex, um, all of, you know, not being able to serve in leadership positions in the church. 
all of these things passed unanimously, but to include women's lack of access to the ballot and the Declaration of Sentiments did not pass unanimously. In fact, the reason that it passed at all was because Frederick Douglass uh, was at the convention. Um, he lived in nearby Rochester and he spoke in favor of including it and it was with his uh, support um, that, the that the folks at the convention included that in the declaration. So um, I wanna talk a little bit how I, how I use the term queer. So I, I use it in, the term, in terms of being different, uh, in terms of gender and sexual minorities like LGBTQ folks, but also in the sense of just living outside of what is considered normal, um, outside of what Gail Rubin has described as the charmed circle, those behaviors and, and ways of being that are acceptable in, in any given society and um, are acceptable and rewarded. And if you are acting or behaving outside of the charmed circle, um, those are not acceptable behaviors and are punished, right? So, so queer are the things that fall outside of that charmed circle. Um, what is included changes and shifts over time and is also different for different cultures and different societies. Um, it's not a static thing, right? So, so even just in you know my lifetime, I've seen L being queer as something that has gone from sort of being outside of the charm circle to moving a little bit more towards the center, a little bit more okay. And you know, for some people in some places, it's like nobody cares, um, and it's sort of right smack in the middle. Uh, and in other places, it's still sort of seen as well, I'm not so sure about that. Um, so sort of riding the edge of the charm circle, but. Um, definitely there has been movement in where uh, LGBTQ folks live uh, in terms of the charm circle. Um, we have limited sources to whether women were physically intimate with each other. Um, they come from rumors and uh, uh, intimations and in written, written accounts, court cases, and the personal diaries and correspondences uh, when those are available. Um, but whether women who shared their lives together were physically intimate is almost besides the point. Um, we assume people are heterosexual regardless of whether they're in a relationship. Um, even if they're in a relationship, we don't interrogate them about whether they are intimate with their partner or not. Um, and so, you know, for example, I knew I, knew I was gay years before. Uh, I had my first relationship. So in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, the term Boston marriage was used to describe two women living together, independent of financial support from a man, husband, right? Um, how many of those were physically intimate relationships versus not? I mean, we don't know. We may be able to find out for in individual cases based on, on evidence that may be there. But again, um, the fact that these were women living without the obvious support of a man makes those relationships queer in the sense that they are different, right? Um, definitely queer for the time. And medieval historian Judith Bennett uses the term lesbian-like to describe women who chose to live their lives centered around other women rather than sort of the heteronormative male head of household, husband, brother, or father. Um, it, it removes the need to prove that there was any kind of physical intimacy or sexual intimacy um, between the folks, between the people. Um, we, we, we get ourselves sort of tied into knots about whether they did or didn't uh, have sex with each other or were intimate with each other um, to sort of prove whether or not it was a, a same-sex relationship. Um, and again, it's, it's, it's besides the point. It's, it's, it's more about how people move through the world. Um, yeah, so the term lesbian-like does remove the need to prove sexual intimacy, but it does erase bisexuality and essentializes male and female genders as the only two that exist. Um, archaeologists Barbara Voss and Eleanor Casella have addressed this in considering the archaeological record 
by looking at the sexual effects in societies. These are the rules and mores around sexual intimacy, cultural understandings of gender, who can marry who, who are considered off limits, who raise children, who inherits property, et cetera. So rather than looking at specific individuals and the intimacy between specific individuals, they take a step back and look at the rules around um, sex and gender in a society, the sexual effects of intimacy. It is in some ways figuring out what the charmed circle is for these past societies. Elizabeth Cady Stanton, uh, one of the key figures associated with the 1848 Women's Rights Convention was also an important figure in the battle towards the 19th Amendment. She can be considered queer in that she kept her own name after marriage. She was never Mrs. Henry Stanton. Uh, she refused to say obey in her marriage vows, although this was not necessarily uncommon for Quakers like Elizabeth. She advertised when she had a child, she had seven children, and when she had a child, she would advertise their gender uh, by hanging flags outside of her home. Um, and this was unheard of. Like you did not talk about like having children, the process of having children that you were like in labor, having a baby was not something that was a public uh, topic of discussion. And Elizabeth Cady stands like hanging flags outside of her house um, to advertise to everyone who passed by, whether she had a boy or a girl. Um, so she may be considered lesbian-like in her choice of focusing much of her attention, money, and life on and with other women. And I'm going to um, talk again a little bit about Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony and their relationship in a little bit. One of the women that Elizabeth Cady Stanton worked with most closely during her life was Susan B. Anthony. Um, Susan was not at the 1848 Women's Rights Convention in Seneca Falls. She was introduced to Elizabeth Cady Stanton in Seneca Falls in 1851, three years later. Together, they were a powerful team in temperance, anti-slavery, and women's rights movements for the rest of their lives. They were constantly in each other's company or in correspondence. Uh, one biographer estimates that throughout her life, Elizabeth Cady Stanton spent more time with Susan B. Anthony than she did with her own husband. Elizabeth Cady Stanton herself wrote of her relationship with Susan, I prefer a tyrant of my own sex, so I shall not deny the patent fact of my subjection, for I do believe that I have developed into much more of a woman under her jurisdiction. Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony were introduced by Amelia Bloomer. And in the middle uh, photo here on the screen is um, Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony on the outsides. And the woman in the middle is Amelia Bloomer introducing them. This is a statue uh, in Seneca Falls. <clears throat> Amelia Bloomer was a suffragist and newspaper publisher who advocated for dress reform. Um, for women to wear more practical pants-like clothing instead of skirts and dresses. We know these as bloomers after Amelia, um, though they were not her invention. She, uh, she became intimately sort of associated with them because of her uh, role in publicizing them in her, in her newspaper. So although not a cross-dresser in the way that we would understand it, Amelia's choice of clothing and the fact that she owned a newspaper mark her at the time also as different and queer in, in that way. So as well as her relationship with Elizabeth Cady Stanton, um, Susan B. Anthony had documented relationships with Rachel Foster Avery in the lower photo uh, on the left, Anna Dickinson um, up on the upper right, and Emily Gross. Susan B. Anthony never married. Um, she was a very public and activist person, and it was very clear, she was very clear, that she thought that women marrying men was a horrible waste of, of women, basically, um, of women's talents, of women's qualities, um, of, of women's energy. And these qualities, as well as her close intimate relationships with other women, marked Susan B. Anthony as queer. And the press and the anti-suffragists used this against her and they called her manly, code at the time for lesbian or, sus, you know, sexually suspect. 
And so in the late 1800s, we see gender and, social, and sexual orientation being sort of conflated, right? So, so your gender presentation as more masculine or feminine is conflated with your sexuality. So masculine men are, are perceived to be lesbians and fem, or sorry, masculine women are seen to be lesbian and feminine men are presumed to be, um, to be gay, right? So sexually suspect because their gender presentation is different, their sexual orientation is also seen to be suspect. Um, and we, we see this uh, as a continuing thread throughout the suffrage movement and beyond. Um, and it's, 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 we see this play out in respectability politics. Um, this idea that in order for whatever change people are working towards that they have to be respectable and not be seen as different so, so that they can be accepted in mainstream society and so that this change can happen. Um, respectability politics is a whole other conversation of its own. Um, <clears throat> it's always a lie uh, is, my, is my short take on respectability politics. Um, but we see that leaders of major suffrage organizations recommended that the women in their ranks wear fashionable feminine dresses and hats. They needed to present themselves as attractive and charming and lovable and not threatening um, so that they could win men's support. And this fabulous image from the library company's um, collections shows the two women on the right are suffragists and they are uh, very sort of strong, what we would consider sort of male, strong faces and strong chins and they're smoking and they're wearing ties and they're wearing sort of manly jackets and weird hats. Um, whereas the two women on the left who are looking askance at them um, are more feminine appearing. They have a softer face, they're wearing bows, um, they're, they're not wearing these masculine suits. And so um, the, two, the two women on the right are walking down the street sort of, you know, doing what they do and they are being looked askance at. They are not normal, they are, they are queer. Um, Anna Howard Shaw actually uh, addresses this. She says, I learned that no woman in public life can afford to make herself conspicuous by any eccentricity of dress or appearance because negative attention injures the cause she represents. And she herself, uh, Anna Howard Shaw originally had short hair and grew it out long and wore it in a sort of very um, sort of conservative bun at the back of her head. Uh, and that was uh, much more socially palatable than a woman with, uh, with short hair was. Here's the catch 22. Um, if you were a woman in favor of suffrage, you were either manly, right? You were, you were sexually suspect or you were promiscuous. Uh, and this is also from the library company's collection and the, 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 um, the, the verse on the bottom says, you talk so much of what you'll do when women have their proper show that for your country in your zeal, you would the men caress and feel, excuse me if I hear portray a female politician's way. And so this idea that um, you were either, you know, very manly and, and lesbian and sexually suspect, um, or you were promiscuous and you were going to use your feminine wiles uh, to get men to do what you wanted um, were sort of your only options um, in terms of your representation in the, in the press, um, particularly by anti-suffragists who, who saw women getting the vote as just, you know, the disintegration of society um, and the disintegration of the order of society. So let's uh, move back a little bit to suffrage history. Um, in 1866, Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton and others, including Lucy Stone and Frederick Douglass, founded the American Equal Rights Association. And the AERA worked for equal rights for women and African Americans, especially for universal suffrage, which means that everybody gets to vote regardless of their color or their gender or sex at the time. 
Um, the AERA fell apart very publicly at an 1869 meeting um, in New York City. And this is uh, the building where they had this meeting was Steinway Hall. And I was able to find actually the far right picture is a, a photo of the interior. And so you've got this very elaborate and lush and opulent stage where, where the just horrible things were said between Frederick Douglass, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, and Susan B. Anthony. And the tensions were around supporting or not supporting the 15th Amendment, which would prohibit the denial of voting based on race, but not on sex. Um, and so Frederick Douglass argued that it was in his, you know, it was his very life at stake to not have the vote. Uh, Elizabeth Cady Stanton said, you know, that's fine, uh, but you know, for all what you say about being a black man, you would not change places with Susan B. Anthony um, because, you know, implying that the, the rights of a woman um, are less than even a black man, of a white woman are even less than a black man. Really horrible sexist and racist things were said. Um, this actually uh, broke their friendship for a number of years. Um, and, and the AERA just fell apart. They couldn't, they couldn't find a way to, to agree to support or not support um, the 15th Amendment, and the 15th Amendment became law in 1870. From the ashes of the AERA came two new suffrage organizations, the National Women's Suffrage Association, founded by Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony, and the American Women's Suffrage Association, founded by Lucy Stone, Julia Ward Howe and others. And I'll note that um, Julia's husband, Samuel Howe, had close and intimate relationships with other men, um, which was a source of uh, tension in their marriage and, if, and in his other relationships. Um, so perhaps not surprisingly, given who its founders were, the National focused on a, a wide range of women's issues including divorce reform and equal pay for women, and almost all of the members of the National uh, were women. In contrast, the American focused on suffrage and sought membership and support for men, including having men um, serve as officers. In 1890, the National and the American reunited and formed the National American Women's Suffrage Association, which I'll refer to as NASA, N-A-W-S-A, uh, the organization grew to over 2 million members and was pivotal to the passage of the 19th Amendment. Um, it was led for its entire history by queer women, uh, including Susan B. Anthony, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, Carrie Chapman Catt, and the Reverend Dr. Anna Howard Shaw. Rachel Foster Avery, who we met earlier as a partner of Susan B. Anthony, um, was NASA's corresponding secretary in its early years. Jane Adams of Hull House fame and who was in a decades-long relationship with Mary Rosett Smith, served as the first vice president beginning in 1911, with Sofonzba Breckenridge elected second VP at the same time. Sofonzba, who was instrumental in pioneering the profession of social work, had a long intimate partnership with Edith Abbott, who was the dean of the University of Chicago's School of Social Service Administration. So the leadership of NASA was very, very queer throughout its history. Um, Elizabeth Cady Stanton was the first president from 1890 to 1892, but, but really in name only, Susan B. Anthony acted on her behalf while Elizabeth Cady Stanton was in England. Susan B. Anthony was the president from 1892 to 1900, and she chose Carrie Chapman Catt to succeed her. Carrie Chapman Catt was president from 1900 to 1904. She's pictured in the middle. She was married twice, first to Leo Chapman, who died in 1886, and then to George Catt, who died in 1905. And she left her position at NASA in 1904, both to look after George, um, but also to organize the International Women's Suffrage Alliance founded in Berlin in 1904, with Catt as the president. After George's death, Carrie lived with Mary Molly Garrett Hay, a leader in New York suffrage circles. Hay died in 1928 after more than two decades as Kat's partner. Kat actually requested burial beside Hay rather than beside her husband's, which speaks to the importance of their relationship. And after Hay died, Ada Wilson moved in with Kat 
serving as secretary and companion until Carrie died in 1947, another decades-long relationship. Anna Howard Shaw was the president of NASA from 1904 to 1935, or excuse me, to 1915. Um, she never married, which, you know, uh, is queer already for the time. In 1880, she was ordained in the Methodist Protestant Church and in 1886, graduated from Boston University's medical school. During her NASA presidency, she built a home in Media, Pennsylvania, where she lived with Lucy Elmina Anthony, Susan B. Anthony's niece. They were, they were together for three decades. Um, they met around 1889. Um, Anna Howard Shaw died in July of 1919 knowing that the 19th Amendment had gone to the states for ratification, but not surviving to see it become law. And then Cherry Chapman, Carrie Chapman Catt was again president of NASA from 1915 to 1920, when it sort of reformed itself um, after, after the 19th Amendment became law. There is more. There is more to the story. In 1910, Alice Paul joined NASA after spending time with English suffragette Emmeline Pankhurst in England, who herself was the object of many women's crushes um, and seems to have uh, reciprocated at least some of them. Thank you, uh, Wendy Rose, for answering that very specific question during a talk that we had um, not that long ago. Alice Paul had a more radical approach than her compatriots at NASA, which led to a split, and Paul formed a new organization called the National Women's Party. Um, Alice Paul insisted that all her personal papers be destroyed upon her death, and so we don't have any, we have little evidence of her personal relationships, um, though she never married and lived a lesbian-like life surrounded by and dedicated to women. The National Women's Party was behind the Silent Sentinel's pickets at the White House in 1917 that changed the public's perception of women's suffrage and suffragists um, that led up to the passage of the 19th Amendment. Mabel Vernon was a key organizer of the Sentinels. She never married, uh, but from 1951 until her, her death in 1975, she lived and vacationed with uh, her, her decades-long partner, Consuelo Reyes Calderon, and that's the two of them in that picture um, at the upper left. And Nino Otero Warren, uh, pictured at the bottom there, was a National Women's Party operative in New Mexico. She was recruited to communicate with the Hispanic community there to build support for women's suffrage. Born into elite Hispanic society in 1908, she married a man named Rawson Warren and divorced him after only two years. Apparently, he was not, uh, not a particularly nice guy. Um, she, referred, she returned to her family in Santa Fe um, because it was socially unacceptable to be divorced. She just told people that she was a widow. Um, in the 1920s, Nina met Mamie Metters, and in the early 1930s, the two women homesteaded um, establishing a ranch called Las Dos, the two women. And in 1947, they went into business together and they continued to live together until Mamie died in 1951. Later in life, Nina was a, quote, regular annual apparition at Santa Fe's hysterical historical parade with openly gay poet uh, Whitner Binner. So far, with the exception of Nino Otero Warren and Consuelo Reyes Calderon, all of the suffragists we've talked about have been white. Indeed, many leaders of the suffrage movement made decisions to exclude black and other women of color from participation in the organizations and even in access to the ballot. This is especially true in the run-up to the passage of the 19th Amendment when the South was key, seen as a key to the ratification and maintaining white supremacy was seen as key to garnering the support of Southern states. This does not by any means mean that black women and other women of color were not working for access to the ballot, but because they could not separate their blackness uh, from their womanness, they did suffrage work often part as part of black women's clubs who also fo focused on other areas like education, housing, racial discrimination, and violence. Alice Dunbar Nelson, an African-American activist and writer, was an organizer for the splinter group that would become the National Women's Party. She traveled throughout Pennsylvania and New Jersey, speaking to both black and white audiences um, in support of suffrage. And she was also a member of the National Association of Colored Women, the sort of club of African-American women's clubs. Although 
an accomplished poet, journalist, and activist in her own right. She's best known as the wife of poet and writer Paul Lawrence Dunbar. They had a stormy marriage. Um, Dunbar drank excessively. Um, he suffered ill health. He suffered depression. Uh, though throughout their courtship and their marriage and beyond, Alice had several intimate relationships that with women that she recorded in her diary. Um, Paul was not a fan of this either. Uh, in 1902, he beat her nearly to death, and she left him, um, but they did not divorce. Um, she leaned on her identity, though, as Mrs. Paul Lawrence Dunbar, even after his death in 1906. This gave her um, both an air of respectability, right, um, but also drew people to her speeches out of curiosity, right, to, to see the woman who had been married to Paul Lawrence Dunbar. Well, the 19th Amendment made it constitutionally forbidden to bar people from the ballot based on their sex. It did not prevent states from limiting voting rights for women, or excuse me, from limiting voting rights for other reasons. So functionally, the 19th Amendment ensured that white women, particularly middle class and elite white women, could vote. Others, including working class women, black women, Native American women, Chinese women, continued to be excluded. Poll taxes, literacy tests, and outright violence kept working class and black women from the ballot. Native Americans had no voting rights for decades unless they agreed to give up their culture and assimilate in many cases. It's not until 1962 that Native Americans could vote in all states, and even then they faced many of the same challenges as African Americans, including poll taxes, literacy tests, and violence. Chinese were excluded from the United States by the Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882, which was not repealed until 1943, and Chinese immigration and naturalization was strict, strictly limited until the Immigration and Nationality Acts of 1952 and 1965. So the battle was not done. The battle for the ballot was not done. And people like Dr. Margaret or Mom Chung worked to open up access to the ballot. She was the first American-born Chinese physician um, and established one of the first Western medical clinics in San Francisco's Chinatown. Uh, she established that clinic in the early 1920s. Um, she treated the local Chinese community. She treated celebrities, including bisexual Tallulah Bankhead, um, as well as uh, being the doctor for a number of Navy reserve pilots. And she would invite them to her home for dinner. Um, and they started calling her Mom Chung and the the, the group of her sons um, grew quite large, actually, uh, and some very, very well-known, um, very well-known folks. Uh, definitely worth a read, uh, to read um, Dr. Mom Chung of the Fair-Haired Bastards is the book, and it is 100% is worth a read. Um, she had intimate relationships with poet Elsa Gidlow and also entertainer Sophie Tucker. Um, she was instrumental in founding the, I wanna make sure I get the, word, the wording right, founding the Women Accepted for Volunteer Emergency Service, known as the WAVES, uh, but she could not join the group, uh, join the organization because the government uh, thought she was gay. And so um, she was extremely important in World War II. She was extremely important to um, the US military and success of the US military. Um, all of these relationships with all of these very famous uh, people who were her sons, and yet was was still excluded uh, because she had relationships with other women. In 1920, after the passage of the 19th Amendment, Alice Paul and the National Women's Party focused on drafting and supporting the passage of an Equal Rights Amendment. They were also instrumental in having the term sex added to the Civil Rights Act of 1964, prohibiting discrimination based on sex. During this time, Alice Paul worked closely with Polly Murray. Polly Murray was an attorney, an Episcopal minister, and a civil rights activist. Um, she knew Eleanor Roosevelt, uh, who had invited her to one of the she 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 camps um, during the Depression. And uh, while there, um, Polly Murray developed a cross-racial relationship with a white counselor, which resulted in both of them getting uh, asked to leave, um, and then they, they actually spent some time traveling across the country together. I, there's just so much about uh, Polly Murray. She coined the term Jane Crow, which described discrimination against women as similar to the Jim Crow laws discriminating against African Americans. Her 1950s book, States Laws on Race and Gender, 
excuse me, race and color has been called the Bible of the Civil Rights Movement. Um, she was appointed by John F. Kennedy to serve on the Presidential Commission on the Status of Women. Ruth Bader Ginsburg named her a co-author on a brief to recognize her pioneering work on gender discrimination. And in 1977, she became an ordained minister in the Episcopal Church. Um, she struggled throughout her life with her gender and sexual, sexual identities, describing herself as having an inverted sex instinct and wondering why is it when men try to like, make love to me, something in me fights. She longed for a monogamous married life, but one in which she was the husband. Polly had many relationships with women throughout her life, and she described the women, though, as very feminine and heterosexual. Some authors have suggested that had she been alive today, she may have identified as transgender, but at the time, of course, didn't have the, did not have the language uh, for that. Um, on several occasions, she was denied access to education and public services based on being black and for being in same-sex relationships. So she had, I think that actually worked in her understanding of discrimination, right? Was the fact that she had experienced discrimination in many ways. Um, and so she sort of had a very personal connection, uh, connection to that. Um, just before the passage of the 19th Amendment, Carrie Chapman Catt and NASA looked to change its mission and it actually transformed into the League of Women Voters. Um, Carrie Chapman Catt is listed as a founder along with other queer women, including Esther Lapp, a journalist and researcher and publicist and the life partner of Elizabeth Reed, who was Eleanor Roosevelt's personal attorney and financial advisor. The National Organization for Women was founded in 1966 from the successor organization to the Presidential Commission on the Status of Women. The founders were inspired by the failure of the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission to enforce Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 that barred discrimination based on sex. Among the founders of the National Organization for Women was Polly Murray. In fact, she uh, co-wrote the mission of NOW with Betty Friedan which was to take action to bring women into full participation in the mainstream of American society now, exercising all privileges and responsibilities thereof in truly equal partnership with men. Their six core issues are reproductive freedom, violence against women, constitutional equality, promoting diversity, lesbian rights, and economic judgment, justice. And these goals are in part um, achieved through voter education and registration drives with the goal of electing representatives who support NOW's mission. So we still see this connection to suffrage and voting. Um, NOW also supports the restoration of the Voting Rights Act, which was gutted in 2013, making it easier for certain states to restrict the voting rights of people, including African-Americans and people, other people of color. So the support for lesbian, uh, the, the support for um, lesbian rights has not always been a platform of NOW. Uh, but lesbians have always been involved in now. Um, in 1969, Ivy Bettini on the left, uh, who was president of the New York chapter and openly lesbian, designed the logo for the National Organization of Women that is still used. That was also the year that she held a forum called Is Lesbianism a Feminist Issue? Which I'm sure made Betty Friedan apoplectic. Uh, as the president of the National Now, Betty was against lesbian participation in the women's movement. She was, like the suffragists early on, relying on respectability politics to gain mainstream acceptance. She refused to the growing, she referred to the growing lesbian visibility in now as a lavender menace and fired openly lesbian newsletter editor Rita Mae Brown on the right there, who went on to write the best-selling and groundbreaking novel Ruby Fruit Jungle. In 1970, Ferdinand's plan to expel lesbians from the organization came to fruition. Among those expelled were Ivy Bettini. In response, at the 1970, same year, the same year, 1970, the 1970 Congress to unite women, 20 women wearing shirts that read Lavender Menace confronted the audience of 400. They then read their lesbian feminist statement, The Woman Identified Woman. Uh, which was one of the very first early sort of lesbian feminist manifestos. And the group, this group later renamed themselves Radical Lesbians, um, and they were active in chapters across the country for many years. Um, they were the, among the first groups to openly challenge the heterosexism of the feminist movement. 
clearly this had an, uh, an effect, and in 1971, now resolved that a woman's right to her own person includes the right to define and express her own sexuality and to choose her own lifestyle. They also committed to offering legal support in a test case involving child custody rights of lesbian mothers. And in 1973, the National Organization of Women established the Task Force on Sexuality and Lesbianism. Del Martin and Phyllis Lyon, best known as the founders of the Daughters of Belitis in the 1950s, uh, actually were members of the National Organization for Women later on um, in the years. So um, that is a very quick overview of queer women in the suffrage movement from, uh, from Boston marriages to the Lavender Menace. And now I'm ready to answer questions. I can jump in if uh, you don't mind. Sure. Uh, what can you tell us about what the National Park Service does in terms of LGBTQ uh, history uh, in their interpretation? And I'm especially thinking about Seneca Falls. Uh, I'm sure the question comes up uh, because it always does now. Right. So Seneca Falls, um, Seneca, I'll start with Seneca Falls. Seneca Falls uh, became a National Park Service unit in 1980, um, and a little bit later, um, 92 maybe, uh, the visitor center and the exhibits went in. And when I first went to Seneca Falls, uh, I was I was there as a contracting archaeologist to do some work before the reconstruction of the Wesleyan Chapel, which is actually where I uh, fell in love with the Park Service and realized that these were folks that I could actually work with. Their commitment to the resource was above and beyond anything that you could put in a job description. Um, and as an archaeologist, I always felt that my my first obligation was to the site, was to the resource, um, and not necessarily to the client or my employer. And so to find people who worked from that same place was, was really uh, amazing. But so the exhibits went in in like 90, 90, 92-ish. Um, my experience at Seneca Falls for the archaeology was like 2005, 2006. And I remember walking into the visitor center and there was, there were lesbians everywhere um, in the, in the exhibit. Um, posters and, you know, protest signs and it was just, it was sort of right in your face as you walked in to the main visitor center and then going upstairs to the second level, just the wall was just plastered with women's history, including lesbian women's history, which really surprised me at, as a National Park Service site um, in a good way. <laughs> um, but still, it was, it was absolutely not expected. Um, interpretation of LGBTQ sites, I mean, we have Stonewall now as of 2016. Um, they're, they're sort of stuck doing the heavy lift as being the site to represent all LGBTQ history, um, even though they were, became an, an, a part of the National Park Service for being Stonewall. Um, they are sort of expected to, to do the lift, the heavy lift for, for other LGBTQ um, history. But other sites also are engaging with LGBTQ history. I know there's interpreter, an interpreter at um, Golden Gate uh, National Recreation Area who talks about, uh, is doing tours about LGBTQ history. Rosie the Riveter has collected, um, it's Rosie the Riveter World War II Homefront National Historical Park has collected, um, targeted a collection of oral histories from LGBTQ folks who were on the home front during World War II. Um, and so they've shared, they've been able to share those stories. Uh, Eleanor Roosevelt, Val Kill, um, is recently been responding to the fact that, that folks show up wanting to talk about Eleanor Roosevelt's relationship with Lorena Hickok. Um, and that is not something that the site has ever sort of wanted to talk about. Um, but the public wants to talk about it, right? Like people show up and want to talk about it. And so instead of um, sort of sidestepping or like being squirrely or just like completely ignoring the questions, 
um, they, they have done work with Sue Ferentinos, who wrote the book on interpreting LGBTQ historic sites. Um, they had her come out, the superintendent shut the site down to the public for a day so that everybody could attend the training and she walked them through like, how do you have these conversations? And so they're now expanding their interpretation to not avoid the subject, right? And in fact, to talk about the fact that Eleanor Roosevelt, regardless of what her relationship with Lorena Hickok was, um, and again, like clearly there was a long-term, very emotionally intimate and important relationship there, whether they were sexually intimate or not is kind of irrelevant, right? Um, but also, I mean, Eleanor was obviously aware of women who were in relationships with each other. Um, she was surrounded with these lesbian power couples. Uh, you know, Marion Cook, uh, the names now off the top of my head here, let me check my notes. Uh, Nancy Cook and Marion Dickerman um, worked with her at Valkill. They were part of Valkill Industries. Um, Esther Lapp and Elizabeth Reed, uh, Esther Lapp was one of the founders of the League of Women Voters and her partner, as I said, uh, Elizabeth Reed, was Eleanor Roosevelt's, you know, personal attorney. So it, it wasn't a mystery to Eleanor about what was going on. Um, and the fact that she surrounded herself with these power couples, I think, is very, very interesting. Uh, and then, you know, just on nps.gov, on the, on the website, um, if you look up the biographies of Carrie Chapman Catt and um, Jane Adams and uh, Anna Howard Shaw, you will see that that their relationships with other women are included in those biographies, just as just as you know somebody marrying somebody would be included in those biographies. So we're we're working on making sure that we are telling all American stories and that people can see themselves, see this history, and see see themselves and see others um, in history. That's great. That's great. Um, I know that Will is here, and I don't want to. Uh, <laughs> do you want me to keep going? No, I, I'm. I'm. Uh, I'm uh, very happy to bring in some other folks to the conversation here. And, yeah. Uh, if uh, if uh, you're more comfortable asking a question orally, uh, just raise your hand virtually. Don't raise your hand in front of the camera. I won't see it. But there's like a virtual button to raise your hand. I will see that, and I'll make sure we bring you into the conversation. But in the meantime, we have. First of all, a, a word of gratitude from Bob uh, Skiba, who writes many thanks for the comprehensive overview, Megan. I'd like hey, a Bob. second. And then we have a question from Al uh, Cavallari, who writes, um, who expresses some confusion about the difference between the terms queer and gay. He writes, it sounds like the term queer is not a reference to sexuality. Do I have it right that everyone who is queer, who, who is gay is queer, but not everyone who is queer is gay? Wow, um, that's that's a really great question. So um, one of so let me start by saying when we were working on the theme study, um, uh, there was a real push from the the folks at the scholars roundtable that queer had to be included, right? Um, because there are people who identify as queer, right? They don't feel like for whatever reason that they fall on fall under the term lesbian, gay, bisexual, or transgender, right? Maybe they feel that they that, you know, because two genders, if they they don't feel like they're one of the two main two genders, that that the, the idea of lesbian or bisexual or gay doesn't necessarily fit. Um, or for some, you know, political reasons, people may identify as queer, right? We had queer nation in the 90s. Um, but at the same time, we have to recognize that there are folks, and, and, and people also use queer as like an umbrella, right? Instead of the alphabet soup of LGBTQIAA plus Q plus plus plus, right? Like it's, it's just to, to include all of these identities has, has become very unwieldy. And so some people choose to use queer as an umbrella term. Um, for all of those identities under the umbrella. But there are folks who really uh, dislike the term. Um, I mean, I came out in 1987, so I remember the 1990s when, when people, you know, for funsies would take baseball bats and drive to the village in Toronto 
specifically to beat the crap out of people. And, and when they're beating the crap out of you, um, you know, they're calling you a dirty queer, among other things, right? Like, I understand that this is a term that people have used in violence towards our community. At the same time, I identify as queer. Um, I identify as genderqueer, right? And so my, my gender is not, doesn't fall neatly in this sort of male or female category. Um, and it just is, is more, I think, descriptive politically than perhaps lesbian is for where I, where I come from politically. Like queer just fits gender, sexuality, and politics, right? It just works for me. Um, so, so when somebody says they're queer, right, you, you can't really assume what that means. You almost have to ask, right? Like, what, what does that mean to you? Um, it can include sexuality. It can include gender expression. Um, gay tends to be focused just on sexual orientation, um, whereas queer can be a little bit broader. Um, but yeah, it's 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 complicated, and and I appreciate the the person who asked the question for for picking up on the nuance and 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 feeling a little confused. Um, it really is a, a a conversation to have with people about sort of why they use the terms they use. That's great. We actually have another question from Al who asks, can you unpack the thinking of the organized female anti-suffrage movement? It sounds odd for one's cause to be in favor of denying oneself the right to vote. Wow, yeah, people act against their own best interests all the time. <laughs> I mean, I mean, it's not, um, it's not just a, a 19th Amendment anti-suffrage issue, right? Um, people, and we, we see it even today, um, people felt that, um, that the social order was just fine the way it was, and they really felt that um, women getting the access to the vote and becoming politically active was going to upset the social order that, that they thought was fine um, and in fact, we're probably benefiting from. Um, even women who were not necessarily benefiting from the social order as it was uh, could be anti-suffrage because they just, you know, the unknown is terrifying. Um, you know, what happens when things change? People are like, you know, the devil you know, right, is better than the devil you don't know. Um, so there was a lot of... Uh, a lot of that sort of feeling. Um, then there were people who were anti-suffrage because of white supremacy, right? If women got the right to vote, and black that included black women getting the right to vote, right? Because because black folks got the right to vote with the Fourteenth or the Fifteenth Amendment, right? And so black men got the right to vote. And so if then that opens up to women, then black women also will have the right to vote. And there's more black women in parts of the South than there are white women. And so there was like no way that the white supremacists in the South um, were, were going to go for this and, and lose their political power because black women would be, allowed, you know, would be able to vote. And everybody talks about you know, the women's vote and the women's block and, and they were terrified about women voting altogether, right, that somehow, all women are like the Borg, right? Like we all think the same and we have the same politics and we understand the world the same way and that we're all gonna vote the same way yeah. was the fear, right? And of, of course that's not true. It's not true for any group, you know, any lump or group of people that we, we have, like nobody, we don't, all, we're not all, you know, identical robots, um, but, that but that was a fear. Uh, that was a, definitely a fear. And then, of course, when once women did have the vote, um, it became very clear that there was no women's block of votes. Um, so, yeah, people choose to vote against or they'll, you know, people will choose to vote against one part of their identity because another part of their identity is more important. Right. So being white might be more important than being a woman for some people or uh, being rich right? Being wealthy and part of the elite power structure 
through a husband or a father or a brother might be more important than than losing that by having a vote. So it's very complicated, just the same way it is today. Yeah, and today here we are, less than three weeks out from a very significant election, and we're hearing about white supremacists doing everything they can to depress the vote. So for all of you with us today, vote, vote, vote. Um, History rhymes, right? Like, history rhymes. <laughs> well, um, it is 8.07, which breaks my cardinal rule of ending at 8, because I know it's a Thursday night. Uh, but this is wonderful. And I want to thank uh, Megan Springgate for her wonderful presentation and Connie King for her lovely introduction for organizing this program. Thank you both. Thank you so much. And um, certainly, if you're all feeling masochistic and you want to continue this journey, uh, we will uh, meet again, as always, with a weekly Fireside Chat series. Next week, we'll have Vince DeGuerro-Lamo, who's going to be uh, talking about his book, Crying the News, A History of America's Newsboys. And I would invite all of you to join. Same time, same place, your couch. Take care, all. Bye.